to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to chapter 10. It's Paul's defense of divine power as we continue. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. A husband and a wife came for counseling after 35 years of marriage. When asked what the problem was, the wife went into a passionate, painful tirade listing every problem they have ever had in the 35 years that they had been married. She went on and on and on, time after time, neglect, lack of intimacy, emptiness, loneliness, feeling unloved and unlovable, an entire laundry list of unmet needs she endured over the course of their marriage. Finally, after allowing this to go on for a sufficient length of time, the therapist got up, walked around the desk, and after asking the wife to stand, he embraced her and kissed her passionately. The woman shut up and quietly sat down as though in a daze. The therapist turned to the husband and said, This is what your wife needs at least three times a week. Can you do this? The husband thought for a moment and replied, Well, I can drop her here off on Mondays and Wednesdays, but on Fridays I fish. Okay, well, we'll let that marinate for a while. Have you ever had those times where you just think you're not communicating? Where there seems to be conflicts with no resolution and you seem to be talking past each other? As we've been going through 2 Corinthians, that's actually what's really been happening here is the church of Corinth and Paul are just struggling in repairing their, their, their relationship. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, I believe you're there. Let's read the first 11 verses. Where Paul writes, I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I am away. I beg of you that when I'm present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have the divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Verse 7. Look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, so also are we. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building, up, for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak 
and his speech of no account. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter, when absent, we do when present. Father, I pray that you'd open our hearts to your word this morning. We recognize that this is not just any old book. This is not just some list of religious morals, thinking, and and, and just positive attributes that we should have. But this is the very word of you revealed so that we may know you, that we may know you and and worship you, Lord, that we may live in a way that is is in accordance with you. So I pray that you'd open up our hearts to this truth. As we delve in here into the 10th chapter of 2 Corinthians, we're removed by over 2,000 years, not only by 2,000 years, but miles of distance and culture and all the other things that many times can prevent us from understanding. So we pray that you would cut through that. Lord, let me speak words that are edifying. Let me speak words that are building up. And Lord, speak to our hearts. And may we respond positively to the Holy Spirit this morning. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. After encouraging the Corinthians to finish well in the grace of giving to the relief project to the churches of Judea, Paul now goes back and writes of his defense of his ministry. The Corinthians' regard for Paul has been undermined, you might remember, by their mistaken ideas of his person and his ministry. And also by his rivals who have wormed their way into the church. And this has caused much problems for Paul. Not only the problems of the conflict, but also the anguish of his soul as his spiritual children are moving themselves from him. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. Thank God I have not it to this time. But I can only imagine what it might be like for a parent to have their children rebel and and create such a a problem and 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 a conflict in the relationships. I know one of the things that we had when our children were young is we had this, we didn't have a family constitution, so to speak, but we had kind of the things that we wanted our, our family to be in. And one of the end results of all that we did is we said, and we had wrote this on a paper and put it on the, uh, on the uh, refrigerator. I said, at the end, when our children are all grown up, we want to have a good, loving uh, friendship with our children. We want to be a place where our kids come home, want to be come to visit us, and not some place that they have to go to do their duty. We want it to be, you know, a very good, fluid relationship. And and praise God, at least in my opinion, that God has seemed to give us that. Isn't that what we want? We all want to have that type of relationship with our children, where they want to be along, you know, be with us when they long to see us. And not just because grandma and grandpa can babysit. Though I'm looking forward to that day. It's coming. I'm counting down the months. July can't get here any quicker. And that's what's going on in Paul's heart. The issue that initiates his defense in this passage is his supposed lack of boldness in person. Remember, Paul, turn your Bibles, if you would, real quickly. Let's do that. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul had threatened to come to them in his first letter in Corinthians to come in boldness. 
and to set what was right. Let's look at that, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18, you see Paul's mindset as he tells them. He says, some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but also their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? But instead, when Paul went to visit, you might remember this earlier in our chapter in 2 Corinthians, Paul goes to visit and he's, and he's confronted with this spirit and with some troubling that he left abruptly during his visit because of the hostile confrontation and the troubling conflict. Only then to write them a strongly worded letter that we do not have to this day, and we've talked much about that. And as the Corinthians are trying to view Paul, his enemies are using that to say, look at what type of person is Paul. He says in his letters he's going to be bold. He says he's going to find out what power he is. But as soon as we confront him in person, he runs off with his tail between his legs. And then what does Paul do? He writes another strong-worded letter to us. What kind of person is he? Really, in reality, what they're questioning here is his courage. What type of man are you? And Paul has taken a portion of time here in this letter to defend himself against their smear tactics, against his courage, and that is weak. The heart of the quarrel that we've been seeing here in 2 Corinthians is Paul's authority over the Corinthian church. Those that have wormed their way have found themselves in prominence. And they were using the power of their rhetoric and even some of the successes they were having to say, look at us, we're greater than Paul. And obviously, to find Paul leave in such an abrupt way could have caused them, and probably caused them to say, ah, see, we repelled Paul. But Paul here is parenting patiently the Corinthian church as he considers himself their spiritual father. Earlier in this book, he had this letter, he had said, you have countless guides in Christ, but you don't have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And the Corinthians here are in need of some correction and some reproof as they find themselves in sin. The question that Paul is asking here is should he use a rod of iron when he comes or a staff of gentleness? And I'm sure to many of the Corinthians they think, well, here he is, tooting his own horn. He's all smoke and mirrors. He's all bark and no bite. That's where Paul finds himself as he's responding. Now, we have already saw, just remember, that after that strongly worded letter, Titus comes back and says, hey, they've responded to that letter by repenting of their behavior. But he's still there's still some turmoil going in. And mainly, it's not the Christians in Corinth, but it's still some of those leaders and teachers there in Corinth. 
And so he's going to do some parenting here. He's going to say, you know, come here, tell, let, let me, let's, how do you want me to approach you? How many of you have had this? How many of you ever had your parents say, go out to the backyard and cut me a stick? Anybody ever had that happen? Yeah. And what was the point? They said, you go ahead and you cut out a stick. But let me ask, let me tell you, if you came back with a puny stick, what's going to happen? They're going to go out and they're going to pick out a, a bigger one. I don't know, maybe, maybe you guys aren't uh, from the south, but that was a big thing back where we came from. You go out and you go out and cut your own whipping stick. So what are you going to do? You're going to cut this little little sapling out there. Well, you better choose a better one because if they don't come back, they'll they'll choose a, a more likely one. And that's really what he's saying. How do you want me to respond to you? And you can understand this if you've ever parent. How do you like to approach your children? We would rather pre- approach our children right with gentleness and with love. There are times with our children that we have to be a little bit more firm, do we not? that we have to be a little bit stronger, that we have to put our foot down. And those are never, never enjoyable times. I remember at uh, one of my first full-time uh, ministry jobs, and I was one of those guys with, uh, with, with the multiple hats, and one of the hats that I wore was a dean of a Christian school. And really all that was was a fancy title to say, I was the one who decided what, what the discipline would be for a young person if they did not... Uh, do their work correctly, or if they did it incorrectly, or if there's behavior problems. And I will tell you, I hated that part of the job. I was a good motivator, but I didn't like the other end of the job. And there would be many times I'd have to have young people in my office, and, and I would I would talk to them, I'd find what's going on, and I'd go to the pastor, i said, I'm not quite sure you're doing that. And he was very good. He really helped me in parenting. And I have some of the materials I really need to share with you. If you're, if you're ready to, to be a young parent or you're parenting now, he had some great materials of how to discipline everything from young children to teenagers. Great stuff. was very good. has restored many families. But I'd have to go to him, and he'd say, well, we've got to do this. And my heart would break, Ruth. It would be very difficult because I find myself more as a mercy giver. I'm not a guy who really puts my foot down a lot. And obviously, what do we know, when do we normally put our foot down and become firm? When we become angry, right? When we lose our temper. But Paul, like any good parent, knew knows that there are times to do that. And I know some of you have done that. That's a very difficult thing. And that can be heartbreaking to say, I've got to use the rod. But I'm encouraged here as Paul writes. Because Paul here is trying to help them learn what it means to be the church what it means to be a Christian, and how we deal with difficult situations. So I want to give you four points that I find here in this passage. The first one, and that's a great one, is even in the midst of all of these difficulties, in the midst of this attack against him, Paul has some hope. And that's the first point, Paul's hope. And we see that in verse, uh, the first two verses. Paul's hope, as he says, I, Paul, myself, and now in this case, you have to realize many times Paul dictated his letters. And so this is one of those things where he either was writing to himself or writing the, the part of the letter himself, or he's saying, I want you to know that this is what I'm saying. I, my, by Paul myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I am away. I beg of you that when I'm present, 
I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to flesh. So Paul is saying, listen, there are going to be some that I'm going to be very firm with. Those were probably those religious leaders, those that were fermenting the rebellion, those that were stirring up the waters. He says, I'm coming because they need a they need a strong hand, but man, I really don't want to do that to you. It's natural for us, though, to be bolder away than, than to be in, in person, is it not? Don't we like to do that? You know, I'd rather write a letter or an email, and we can be a little bit stronger or sterner in that. Why? Because it's just easier. Anyone here, by the way, let just see, anyone here love confrontation? You're that person that just loves to get right into it? Nah, there's not too many of you, except when you're driving. But there's some of you that what we really want to do is we want to avoid confrontation at any time. We do all that we can. That's what Paul is trying to do. It's natural for us to be more bolder in a letter. We can say things in a letter. We can say things in those ways much better than we can in person. So there is that natural response. But the reason Paul had left Corinth so quickly during that short visit in the midst of conflict, was to spare them both from an embarrassing and troubling situation. Paul is saying, it wasn't because of my weakness, it wasn't because I was afraid of you that I left, but because I'm humble. He realized that sometimes when there is an issue coming on, sometimes you just have to, what's the word, retract yourself? That's not the word I'm looking for, but extract yourself from it. You know, you got to pull yourself out of it, and you have to think about it. And that's good advice sometimes. Husbands and wives, that's very good. Sometimes you need to take a walk, men, before you raise a hand, or before you let that word get out. It was to spare them from an embarrassing and troubling situation. He wanted to prove to them that his relationship with them was more important than the circumstance. Can you get that? Write this note down if you're taking it. This is so important. Is that your relationship with people is more important than any circumstance. The circumstance will come and go, but the relationship is what we want to stand. They took that as weakness. But he wanted to prove to them that his relationship was more important than the circumstances. However... As their spiritual father, he could not allow the sinful behavior to go uncorrected and to continue. So Paul says we have to put all this aside. We have got to confront this issue. And Paul reminds them of the meekness and gentleness of Christ when he says, I myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. This is a reference to Christ's slowness, to anger, and patience. Aren't you glad that we have a Father, a God who is slow to anger and is patient? He tells us that in 2 Peter chapter 3, that He is. Some people wonder, I, I wonder you know, why God does this. Well, I'm wondering why God allows me to live. It's not the fact that we die, it's the fact that God lets me to live, that He, lets me, uh, he allows me to breathe. It's a reference to Christ's slowness to anger and patience in order 
to allow time for repentance before he returns to judge, which Paul initiates in his dealing with the Corinthians. So like Christ, he's showing some meekness. He's showing some, some reserve here. He's some controlled temperament. And says, listen, I'm trying to deal with you as a father to, a, to their child. Please don't do this. Don't you see this is hurting us? The whole purpose is to get them to see the wrongness of their, and the error of their ways so they can repent and turn and change. But in the end, there comes a point when a good, godly father will say, enough is enough. We must deal with this. And that's what Christ says. That's why he says in Psalms, don't despair that the evil workers prosper or workers of evil prosper. I was just reading that yesterday at the hospital. So don't worry about that. Yes, evil has its day, but let me tell you, there is a day of judgment, amen? And God will take all things into account, and He will balance the scales. Even in America, we say justice is blind, and sometimes we wonder if that's the case. But let me tell you, there will be a day when God will righteously judge all things. And Paul is initiating, listen, I am being meek and gentle as Christ is with us. That's how we should approach problems. That's how we should approach conflict. However, you must understand that in the Corinthian and Roman culture, humility was not a virtue that was held in high esteem. They were all about us being proud. Be as Romans, be as Greeks, and be as, be as, as all that we can be. I'm sure they had their international day of awesomeness too, where everyone can beat their chest and say, look at me, look how awesome I am. But in essence, what Paul is telling them is not to mistake his meekness for weakness. Because as Christ will one day judge the world, so I too will come back to Corinth and I will judge those who are in sin and in error. He says, I will come with confidence and I count on showing against the some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. So there's Paul's hope. His hope is, is that when he comes to them to confront those that have been fermenting and causing this problems, that he will not have to act that way towards the church. Now what we see in, verse, or in verses three, and 3 through 6 is the second point. We see Paul's heart. So we saw Paul's hope. Now we see his heart. For he says, for though we walk in the flesh, yes, we do walk in the flesh, we walk here on this earth, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion that's raised against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Paul now moves from the I to the we. He is pointing out that he and the Corinthians have a common objective. 
And what's that common objective? It's a warfare in fighting Satan. In other words, Paul is realizing my problem isn't really with you, and it's not you with me. Our problem is, is we need to realize is that we are fighting each other, but the enemy is who? Satan. It's the devil. He's the one who's stirring this whole pot up. Even today, he tries to stir up the church for person against person, family against family. Every time a family is torn apart by divorce, Satan says, ah, got me another one. He wants to destroy what God has blessed. Paul is pointing out that he and the Corinthians have a common objective. Though they walk in the flesh by living in this world, and they have to talk with dealings, with emotions, and all those types of things, Paul understands that conflict comes not from people, but from the wicked plans and designs of Satan. And if I could tell you anything, in your marriages, in your parenting, in your work, in your driving in the, on the freeways, your problem isn't people, but it's the designs and it's the schemes of Satan. Paul had warned them earlier that we would should not be outwitted by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his designs. And we need to be understand that. We should not be outwitted. The devil is a liar. Jesus condemned the Pharisees in John chapter 8, verse 44, when he says, You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. In the next chapter that you and I will study, Paul will warn them that Satan himself disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. In other words, Paul is saying, listen, these men are proclaiming to be Christian teachers. They may be sitting in your pulpits and proclaiming Christ, but they are like Satan. They are liars. They are angels of light. Look at their acts and their deeds. You'll see who they come from and what fruits. And obviously, if someone is fermenting rebellion against Paul, Paul is saying, look at that. Is that Christian? Is that godly? You and I need to look at ourselves many times. What is that our attitude towards others? Is it the fruit of the Spirit or is it the works of the flesh? In this case, Paul desires to reprove and correct the disobedience of the Corinthians. That's his desire. I want to get my children on the right track. And after that is completed, and they have come to obedience and they've resolved their issues, he wants the Corinthians to join them in bringing the outsiders to godly judgment. That's when he says, that we need to be ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. So many times before we can tackle someone else, we need to make sure that we've done the hard work 
of sanctification ourselves. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, why don't you turn to that very quickly. I'd like for you to see that verse. Paul gives his spiritual son Timothy some instruction. I think this is a good verse for us to mark, to underline in your Bible or to bracket it in some way. For in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 23, he says, Have nothing, Timothy. Timothy, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. Why? We need to destroy those arguments. We just need to destroy those lofty opinions. Why? Because he says, you know they breed quarrels. Nobody wins. It just stirs the pot. Do you ever have somebody like that? Do you ever have anybody in your, in your, in your circle that just says things just to get a reaction. You know? They just want to, they just want to stir it up. Verse 24 of 2 Timothy 2. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with what? Gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of truth. And that's Paul's desire. He wants to treat them with kindness. Why? So that they may come to repentance. And that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil. After being captured by him, Satan, to do his will. The Corinthian Christians were doing the will of Satan and did not even realize that. How many times have you been doing the will of Satan? Harsh word? Cold shoulder? Angry thought, a fight, unforgiveness. It's at that time we take up the tools and the wills of Satan, and that's what we do. Paul says it must not be so. Every opinion, every thought, we need to strike that down. Why? You need to make it captive. When I have that angry thought, I need to make it captive to the gospel. And what's the gospel? Is forgiveness. When I'm angry with my wife or my children, make sure that I do it in a loving way or capture that. Make it captive. Make my actions and my thoughts and my opinions, make it do the will of God, not the will of Satan. Unfortunately, there are many pulpits today that are doing more the will of Satan than they are the will of God. So that was Paul's hope. Paul's heart is that they would see that they're not to fight each other, but to come, come together in common objective in fighting Satan. Do not be deceived. But we see Paul's confidence in the next two verses, 7 and 8. Back to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul says, look at what is before your eyes. Open up. Recognize what's going on. If anyone is confident that he is Christ, 
Let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, so also are we. We are Christians together. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for the building up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. Paul has a confidence. He says, see and discern between us. Look at those leaders who are leading that smear campaign against me. Look at those who demean my character and my ministry. We are a possession of Christ, he says. And our authority is from God. And that authority from God is not for my own uh, privilege and my own prestige and for my own foundation and my own form, but it's for building you up. So look and discern between us. Does my ministry build you up? Or does it destroy you and tear you down? Does their ministry build you up or tear you down? Paul says, you be a judge between us. Paul is reminding them of his work as a minister of the new covenant. It was under his ministry that the word of God came to them first. It was under his ministry that they heard the gospel and were called by the Father. It was under his ministry that they had grown as his church and as Christians though they may find fault with him as with any human being, he knows that he stands faithful before God. He says, I'm not ashamed. God will judge between us. And as he said early in their chapter, I have been proven faithful. So if my boasting is too much, I boast that I am faithful for what God has said. Check my fruits. Have I built up or have I destroyed? important for us to understand which leads to Paul's consistency as he says I'm confident in my ministry I do want us to fight together I want to come to you with a way in which you repent Paul gives his consistency he changes or he gives them a true understanding of the difference between his letters and his person For he says, I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters. That's not my desire. My desire is not to be someone who frightens you, who writes scathing letters. For they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak, and his speech of no account. And to be honest, that's a quote there. I don't know if you see that in Scripture, but that's probably very true. From everything that we we know of Paul, Paul, by the way, is mighty in his letters. Peter says that. Peter says, tells the Jews, he says, man, the things that Paul writes sometimes are very difficult to understand. The man is a mighty giant of intellect. And he was, and we'll see that in, in the next few chapters as Paul goes on in his defense. He was a man of intellectual uh, capacity. He understood the scriptures. He was well known and versed in all aspects of those things. But yet, from what we know about him, he probably was not someone who was tall and handsome. He didn't have the dark hair with just the right shades of gray to make himself look distinguished. In other words, if he were to run president for the United States, he wouldn't get past any primary. He was not a man who believed style should should go over substance. There was nothing Clintonian about him. And I use Clintonian as a presidential in which a style over substance in the 90s used to be the charge against him. 
Paul is saying, yeah, I'm not much to look at. And remember, the Corinthians, that's what they looked at. They looked at powerful speakers who could use words in a great way. They looked at people who were imposing. Don't we do the same thing? We have a term for it, right? He looks what? Presidential. Paul says, yeah, I'm nothing to shake a stick at. There's nobody beating down my door to say, wow, let's follow him. But he says, but let a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. Paul says, do not be mistaken. Paul desires to come in gentleness. Yet he warns them not to make the mistake that he will overlook their sin that is so prevalent in the church. He says, you mistake why I left last time. You mistaking, you know me. I am consistent in my life. Paul prefers to use persuasion rather than to rail at them. And he'd rather use reason arguments to coax them into submission rather than to beat them into submission, just like any parent, good parent, should. In James chapter 3, verse 17, you can look this up later. He says, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reasoning, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. James is writing by the gift of the Holy Spirit, but he could be describing Paul to a T. In other words, Paul is saying, listen, my first response is to be gentle among you as any loving father, but as any loving father would need to do, I'm going to come and correct. So make no mistake, I can be and bring that rod of power if necessary. So Paul says, listen, I've been consistent. Let God be the judge. See between us, but make no mistake, my desire is to reconcile this in a way that is pleasing to God. I'd like to give a key point here as we look at Paul's hope. We see Paul's heart to fight Satan, not each other. We see his consistency and we see his confidence. But I want to go back to a portion of Scripture that we need to understand. And that's back to their chapter 4, or verse, I'm not sorry, not chapter 4, but chapter 10, verse uh, 4. For he says, For the weapons of our warfare are not of flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Paul recognizes that the power he has is to destroy the strongholds that Satan is trying to build in our lives. Now, stronghold is a term we don't use much, but in those times when there would be a city, they would build a place of defense. And once you would take over a piece of land, as you were fighting for land those days, and you would conquer it, you would build another stronghold or a place where you could say, this is us, and we'll defend it. And that's what a nation would do, is they would work this way, they'd build a stronghold to defend it, leave some people there, and then when they would go on, and before you know it, even though they may not have conquered all of your land, they've conquered enough to where you cannot easily go back. And that's why the Bible says, be careful for the Satan seeks strongholds in your life. He may not be able to defeat you completely, but what he wants to do is just find enough strongholds, enough points in your life to where he has a place that says, 
mine rather than God's. So he says we destroy, and, what he, and this is very important. So what's the strongholds? How, what, how does Satan get the strongholds? We see this in verse 5. He says we destroy every argument and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. That's Satan's design. Satan does attack, and you know, we have this thing in movies where, you know, exorcisms and things of that nature, and we think of uh, the old Peretti books where, you know, Satan is coming and the demons are coming and they want to strike your body. Now, we know from Scripture that they can, but really, the power of Satan is not over your body and not over your soul, but of your mind. That's why the Bible says, guard your heart, for from it is the wellspring of life. So what Satan is trying to do is he wants to put up in your mind, he wants to put up things in which you attack the sovereignty and the goodness of God. You and I know what we're talking about. Men, that's pornography. Women, that's pornography, and it's found many times in romance books. If I can make you think that this man, fantasy man, is better than your husband, he starts attacking and making you diss your husband and think less of your husband. It's the same thing that works with a, with a man uh, looking at pornography or looking at pictures or, or a supermodel. Same thing happens when we desire something else rather than with God. He works through ideas and things of that nature. And he's attacking the church through ideas. We see that very clearly. We see that, see that with the issue of gay marriage. Does it really matter? The answer is yes. Because we need to understand it's not about civil rights. See, that's what they turn it, right? It's a civil rights issue. And to be honest, if I think American only, I say, well, yeah. It does seem to go against the Constitution. They should be able to be allowed to do what they want. When I think American, when I think of democracy. <clears throat> but the issue of, of gay marriage is not about, and this is not a, a rant against gay marriage, it's just an, an, an it, one of the issues that's prominent today. The issue isn't so much about civil rights. The issue is Satan here is attacking marriage. You say, well, marriage is just a state institution. No, it's not. For the Bible tells us that who designed marriage? God. And God gave Eve to man. And he says the two shall leave their, their mother and father, and they shall come together, and they shall cleave together and hold fast. And what God has put asunder, let no man put apart. People say, well, Jesus never spoke against homosexuality. Jesus did too. For Jesus quotes the words of God, the Father, in that very instance. So, it, so the gay agenda is not about civil rights, but it's attacking God's design. Premarital sex and free sex, again, we think, well, that's just anybody doing what they want. Again, a civil rights issue, right? No, it goes against God's plan. God's plan is one man and one woman. You see, we think of these things sometimes political or civil rights, but really what they're doing is they're coming against the very Word of God. And that's what we need to see that the true issue is. 
Who ever thought that in America this would change so drastically over a period of, what, 10, 12 years? And probably even less than that, I would say in the last five to six years, has it just changed dramatically. See, the weapons of Satan's warfare are not physical but spiritual. And the weapons of Paul's warfare warfare is not to attack people. He's not attacking institutions. But his is spiritual in the fact of prayer and the word of God and faith and the power of the Holy Spirit. By the Spirit, Paul is tearing down the strongholds of wrong thinking and behavior that are reflected in the lives of those who resist his authority. For he says, submit to your authorities. The Bible tells us, submit to our government authorities. Why? Because they are God's regents and mediators on earth. And so we need to recognize and not be outwitted by Satan. He's like a roaring lion, Peter tells us, seeking who may devour. And he does that with thoughts. He does that with ideas. And across American churches and in many Christians' uh, minds, that's being attacked by the health and wealth and prosperity message. It's done by those who say, well, God just wants you to have life all abundant. You'll never be persecuted. You'll never have trouble. And if you have any, it's because you're just not giving enough money. Again, going and flying in the face of God's word. There's two enemies that you and I need to destroy in our warfare. That's rationalism and skepticism. We must be careful of these two kissing cousins. They have been used down through the ages to attack God's word. And that's what's happened to the Corinthians there, and that's what's happening to us. They rationalize and say, see, Paul is not a minister of God because look at all the problems in his life. Look at the torture and the persecution. They're skeptical because he isn't strong and tall and powerful and speaks with great words. But Paul reminds us that in the gospel, in the word of God, that we're to be humble and we're to be gentle. I want to challenge you this morning. Let us be men and women that love God and that seek to live out the godly principles that are found in his word, recognizing that Satan will do everything to destroy your marriage. He will try to destroy your relationship with your children. He will try to, 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 to torture your home. He will try to make you at unease with even yourself. Drinking, addictions. He wants you not to be even to face yourself in the mirror each morning. I challenge you this morning. Do not be unaware of the designs of Satan. For one day God will boldly judge. But he comes to us in gentleness and meekness and says, repent, repent. I'm going to ask you just to bow your head and close your eyes for a moment. Maybe take pen in hand with your notes. I'd like for you to just take a moment and just reflect on the message this morning. How would God call you to respond to this morning?
We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.